doctors don't have a clear understanding of it. It started opening up my mind to like, how does the human body work? This is a real thing that really affects people. This is a major pain. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Janelle about complex regional pain syndrome, or CRPS. Although this chronic pain condition is mysterious in origin, it is believed to be caused by trauma. And as you'll hear in this conversation, Janelle has absolutely experienced trauma. She'll tell us about surviving two separate car accidents where her neck was broken in each accident. These injuries required multiple surgeries, which eventually caused CRPS, this complex regional pain syndrome. This condition was formerly known as Reflex Sympathetic Dystrophy Syndrome, RSDS, and according to the ClevelandClinic.org, it's a condition that causes pain, swelling, changes in skin color, texture, and temperature, and other symptoms. It usually affects your extremities, an arm, leg, hand, or foot, but can affect any part of your body. Most cases of CRPS start after a soft tissue injury, such as a sprain, fracture, or surgery. The pain can be intense and is much more than what would be expected during recovery from an injury, fracture, or surgery. Experts believe that CRPS occurs as a result of dysfunction in the central or peripheral nervous systems. Your central nervous system consists of your brain and spinal cord. Your peripheral nervous system relays information from your brain and spinal cord to your organs, arms, legs, fingers, and toes. The abnormal functioning results in an overreaction to pain signals that the nervous system can't shut off. CRPS is not widely known by many doctors and is not well understood, so it's often misdiagnosed. Many patients receive the wrong treatments or no treatment at all. And that's a theme that we'll be discussing today, this idea of misdiagnosis, of doctors not knowing what CRPS is, doctors doing the wrong things. Janelle has been through it all. Her story is absolutely remarkable. She grew up as an athlete pursuing several different sports, but her injuries forced her to switch gears and become an activist, helping others to navigate our confusing medical system and to advocate on their behalf through her work with the National Pain Council. As she describes it, it helps her to avoid hopelessness by helping others. Janelle's medical journey has been so incredibly frustrating and maddening and unfair, and I was so impressed with her ability to share, to open up, and to give us a glimpse into what it has been like. She did a really fantastic job. Once again, we have an incredible episode of the podcast to share with you, and I'm so excited to get to our conversation with Janelle in just a couple minutes. Yesterday, I had the pleasure of taking part in a panel called the Perspective Series on Invisible Disabilities, uh, put together by the Connectra Society. As I mentioned last week, I was so nervous to agree to do something like this live because I never know how I'm going to be feeling on any given day, but this just felt like such a good opportunity and something that was you know, so important to me, and I was so honored to be asked that I decided to just go for it, and I'm happy to report that it went very well, and I learned a lot. I met some really amazing people. The other panelists were all fascinating, and I, I hope to hear from some of them on this show at some point in the future because the work that they are doing is really incredible. So I had a, a really amazing time doing this uh, this panel. And I actually have a link to share with you because they have reposted it on the Disability Foundation YouTube page. So I grabbed a link and I have put it in the description of this podcast if you'd like to check out this hour-long discussion that we had yesterday. There's a lot of really, really great stuff in there to check out. I have some great information to share with you this week from our friend India, the retired nurse, 
who has been sending us some expanded information about the medical conditions that we cover on this show. And this is in regards to Herb's Palsy, which we talked about with favor a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. So here's what India sent us on Herb's Palsy. Herb is the name of one of the doctors who first identified the condition. Palsy is a condition that ranges from paralysis to weakness or problems with using the muscles, which may be accompanied by the loss of feeling and uncontrolled body movements. Palsy can occur in various parts of the body, or in the entire body, as in the case of cerebral palsy. Herb's palsy occurs in the shoulder or arm or both, and is most common as a result of shoulder injuries during birth. It is a type of brachial plexus palsy. The brachial plexus is a group of five nerves that allow your shoulder, arms, and hands to feel and move. If injured, these nerves can cause a lot of pain. A doctor accidentally injected me there while doing a nerve block, and I screamed and just about passed out. The effects of Herb's palsy can resolve on their own, or, as in Favor's case, can require surgery. India also sent us some information about scoliosis, because uh, Favor also is dealing with scoliosis. So, what she says is, scoliosis is not comorbid with Herb's palsy, but obviously caused additional problems for Favor. Scoliosis is a sideways curve of the spine, and can be visually undetectable or very obvious and disabling, sometimes requiring surgery. Scoliosis can result in restrictive lung disease. Because of the curve, there is less room for the lungs on the affected side, making it difficult to breathe. So th this was really interesting to me. I did not realize that scoliosis could actually affect how much room your lungs have. And India concludes by saying, I was really impressed by Favor's positive attitude and strength. She is certainly an optimist and a fighter. India, as always, thank you so much for your comments. It adds so much to the show to have your expertise. And I really, really appreciate it every time we hear from you. If this podcast is part of your weekly ritual, I hope you will consider supporting us on Patreon. There are three tiers of support. The supporter tier at $2 per month, the patron tier at $7 per month, and the producer tier at $25 per month. Each tier has different rewards and gifts. An extra special thank you to our four Patreon producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, and Trish O'Brien, for helping to make this show possible. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to Patreon.com slash major pain podcast to sign up. Every listener who supports us on Patreon gains access to monthly bonus episodes with myself and Andy answering your questions. And I just posted the prompt for our February bonus episode. So for all of you who are supporting us on Patreon, head over to patreon.com slash major pain podcast and leave a comment on the latest post asking for your questions for our February bonus episode. We love hearing from you and we love getting prompts for us to discuss in our bonus episodes. It's also hugely helpful to leave us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And you can now leave us positive ratings on Spotify since they've just added that feature. If you have questions or comments you'd like to share with myself and the rest of the audience, you can email me at majorpainpodcast at gmail.com, or you can leave a comment on any episode of the podcast on our website at majorpainpodcast.com. I'll remind you, as always, that my guest and I are not medical professionals, and please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. 
I'm so appreciative that you're here listening to this podcast, engaging with this community, and helping us grow. Uh, I'm so excited about this podcast. It's such a joy to be doing this, and I, I couldn't do it without all of you listening. So, thank you all so much. And with that, we're going to jump into our absolutely fantastic conversation with Janelle about CRPS, Complex Regional Pain Syndrome. Janelle, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to chat with you today. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So um, I was originally born in Germany, mm. and I'm an army brat. My dad went to West Point, and uh, we lived over there for about two years, and then moved to the States, um, moved all around. Um, but we kind of ended up in Pennsylvania, near the Poconos area, uh, from about age five till I graduated high school. And um, I really don't have much of a life concerning um, having like a normal job and everything like that, because I kind of became disabled pretty early on in my life. Mm -hmm. But prior to that, um, I loved playing sports in high school. And I actually uh, won a scholarship uh, to play field hockey at Ohio State. And I actually... um, Played on the B squad, uh, 1996 Olympic team. Um, oh wow! So for the United States. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but yeah, basically sports was my entire life up until I hit 21, 22. Wow! Um, I, I did get to graduate college, um, um, but right after college, uh, my first job out of college, I actually worked as an undercover agent at a private law. I'm sorry, private law enforcement called PLE Group. Huh. Um, and I did that for about six to eight months of undercover work. And then I worked on their uh, marketing team after that. And then once I, um, the actually the uh, owner died. And once it changed um, uh, who controlled the company, uh, I just, I didn't like it anymore. And at that point, I already broke my neck once. And I really wanted to go into like the FBI or the CIA at some point. And this was kind of my path to go there. And uh, because I had a broken neck, there was too much red tape. So then what I did is uh, I ended up um, working for JP Morgan Chase uh, as a mortgage uh, broker. And this was like, about, this was in 2002 to 2004 area. So right before the housing market crashed. So I kind of did very well, <laughs> you know, just kind of um, being that young and everything like that. And I saved my money. Um, and then actually I had my second accident in 2003 and I, um, I was paralyzed in my left arm actually after the accident. And, you know, we could go into all of that, but anyway, I couldn't ended up, I couldn't work there and sit in an office and sit at a desk for 12 hours a day, you know, six, seven days a week. Cause I would work a lot if I could. And so what I ended up doing is um, starting a uh, business where I flipped houses in Dayton, Ohio. And um, I had a partner in this. And because I worked at Chase, I was able to get access to all the foreclosed or auction off houses before they would kind of get on the market. So that was like a really nice thing. And then um, we would also get government grants and do um, uh, uh, facelifts to the inner city, uh, inner city housing and stuff mm. like that. So, wow. but then in 2006, I kind of just couldn't do it anymore. I sold it. Um, I ended up meeting my soon to be husband at that point, And we moved to Chicago for his uh, company and his work. And, um, yeah. 
Wow. It sounds like you've lived quite a few lives already. Yeah. Well, that was early on. Yeah. When I was young, I'm 43 now. That was, uh, it was around 23, I think then. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like you've been kind of, um, you've been chased by health issues from place to place. I, I kind of relate to that feeling of wanting to do certain things and then health problems pop up and I find myself doing something totally different. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, because pretty early, I mean, I was 16 when I first broke my neck in a car accident. So, um, but I was able to come back from that. And then like when I, in 2003, when I broke it again and I was paralyzed and I had to work so hard to just get my, you know, arm back and, um, just coming out of that, it just, it kind of, um, was the end to me being able to work any kind of normal job again. Yeah. And I actually didn't apply for disability until like 2010, but, um, just cause you know, I was married and I didn't really need it at the time. Um, but you know, it, it's just, it, you're right. It was one of those things that I always kind of was chasing, trying to get healthy again. And, you know, I think when this happens to you, you just never realize uh, I mean, you have your entire life in front of you and then suddenly something major, you know, just completely changes your entire life. And then what are you supposed to do then? And, and you don't ever think that that's going to happen, but it does. And it kind of has always continually been like that throughout my life. You know, like I, I find out I have another incurable disease, you know, and then there's something new I have to find. <laughs> like and figure out a way to kind of cope with that and survive and get through that and in order to kind of move on and, and, and try to have a life, I guess, you know, and find something new that you like. Um, yeah. I I always felt like too, with being disabled, um, you know, it's kind of like a remake of the life that you would have had, but you're just not as good almost. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. I, my, uh, my own experience, I've kind of, reframed it a little bit differently but if that's what works for you that definitely makes sense to me (laughs) yeah maybe i shouldn't said it that way i'm sorry (laughs) no 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 not at all that's totally fine i I think in my my experience has been that uh, my health issues have pushed me into places i never would have been before and opened up pathways that i never would have experienced otherwise you know like this podcast is a great example of that and i found a lot of things that bring me a lot of joy and a lot of love in my life and things that make me really happy because of my health issues. And that's kind of my coping mechanism, you know, to deal with all the the crap is to just like find the things that that bring me joy and um, focus on those. Um, but I, I've definitely felt that way before that like this new version of me is not as good as the one before. And that's been really hard for me to kind of process through. And I, I find that the more I focus on the good, the happier I become. I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think I was kind of coming from the view of of me trying to like, you know, when you're very young, you have all these dreams and goals, and then suddenly that's wiped out yeah. completely. I mean, I went from being, you know, playing at the Olympic level within a few years to being completely disabled. It was just such a shock to me. Yeah. I didn't know how to figure out how to cope with that. Now, 20 years later, absolutely. Looking back, I feel like this has been a gift. I've been able to um, uh, meet people I probably would have never have met. I, I really enjoy life and I love life. because The things that I have been able to find um, – 
these new loves and likes that I've, I've been able to find, I, I really love them. I, I appreciate them. And, you know, advocating has been such an amazing thing. I mean, the, you never think that when you advocate for somebody else, I guess I, guess I was really shocked to realize how much it actually helped me too. Like I, I'm helping somebody else, but it completely, it was just so, it, it's been so fulfilling. And it's the best thing I could hear is when, you know, I'm able to find somebody, a doctor, or be able to um, help teach somebody how to um, talk to their doctor so they're able to get the medications or the right care that they need and that their life just completely changes, you know, and, and they have a quality of life again. I mean, that's just amazing, you know. And Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I know from, you know, we've been emailing back and forth. I know that you've done some work with the National Pain Council. Um, and since you just talked about advocating, I'm curious, can you tell us just a little bit about that before we get more into your story? Sure. Well, um, actually, about six, seven years ago, I started advocating uh, for this community. I never realized, I never met anybody that was like me, that was disabled like me until about six, seven years ago when I met the online world and I started going into, you know, Facebook, Facebook groups, like uh, support groups. When I basically, when I found out I had CRPS, that's when I started looking more into this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and prior to that, I was really alone, you know, cause like, you know, a lot of my friends and family didn't really want to be around me because, you know, they'd make you, you would make, um, plans and then you'd have to cancel in last second. So <laughs> people just didn't understand that. So I didn't know anybody else like me. And then I, I, I met the advocating world when I found out I had CRPS basically, actually it was a little bit longer than that. Um, but what it started out as is I met people within that had CRPS as well, and they wanted to create a, um, a nonprofit. And, you know, I was pre-law um, when I was in college and stuff like that. And they they kind of needed some help with that and um, so with financial stuff. And because I worked at Chase, you know, that was kind of a easy thing for me to kind of help out with. Um, and that's when I kind of started meeting other people uh, that had other nonprofits or organizations that, with CRPS. And then I realized there's all these other diseases and health issues people have too. And it's actually a really huge world. It's yeah. just, I didn't ever know about it, you know? Yeah. yeah. So um, I think the first thing I ever really did is I created a Facebook group and I was just so nervous about that. I didn't know what to do with it really. I didn't know what it, what to do with it, how to get people to, um, you know, kind of sign up and get interested. So I kind of just started putting out things about wellness, like things that have always worked for me throughout the years with my health of what I learned or, um, you know, uh, medications that did or didn't work or uh, exercises or diets. I started putting that kind of out there. And then I met somebody else that worked in um, uh, like more of the natural wellness type of stuff and kind of got me interested in that. So I I, I kind of went on a period where I decided I, I didn't want to be on any of my medicines <laughs> and I wanted to try to do everything through supplements, diets, and natural stuff. That didn't work out too long, but <laughs> I had to try it, you know, because yeah. I, feel I think like, we all go through that. For sure. I, I, yeah. I feel like, you know, throughout my life, I've tried every little thing and I'm, I, what I've learned is it's kind of like a combination of everything. Exactly. You know? Yeah. You, you kind totally. of had to do so, but you definitely, with our types of health issues, I don't think you should be without medicine. So, um, but you know, I, I just wanted to try it and see how it went, but, and actually um, I, then, um, so that nonprofit ended up, you know, 
kind of fumbling out, nothing happened with it. But then I started uh, getting into, I wanted to do podcasts. I love podcasts, you know? And um, so I started my own. It was, it was called a uh, conspiracies against wellness. Oh, wow. And what I, I, and I would have on Mondays, I'd have like um, a professional on Tuesdays. I'd have like somebody that, um, uh, a, a, a patient that had that health issue, you know, the, mm. the professional talked about, and then from the patient view and then Thursdays I'd have, um, Collins. And at wow. first I couldn't do all of that, but eventually I kind of built that. But what I started to do is go online and find out like in articles, people that were like, that wrote them or that it was about, I would contact them and see if they wanted to come on my podcast. And that's kind of how I met, um, a lot of doctors, pharmacists, um, you know, politicians, um, therapists, psychologists, uh, patients. And that's kind of how I met more and more people throughout my life. And then I decided to do another podcast instead of doing like my one three days a week. Um, I ended up doing one with um, Dr. Thomas Klein mm -hmm. on Tuesdays. It was called The Doctor's Corner. And it would be just him and I. And then I had on Thursdays, I kept, did Keeping You in the Family with Dr. Margaret Aranda. I produced hers only. And then I produced one on Sundays for uh, Claudia Mirandi called DPP Rally with Claudia. And so those kind of, that's where it ended up being. And I ran that until um, 2019. And then I lost um, my care again. So it was just like, there was no way I could continue marketing, producing you know, editing, uh, uh, co-hosting, hosting. It was just a lot. So I kind of ended up kind of shutting that down. Um, and once I lost my doctor and I found another doctor eventually, then that's when um, Dr. Thomas Klein and I, who have been advocating for many years now, um, we decided that we would start uh, National Pain Council. And, um, you know, National Pain Council really came about kind of because throughout the years, Dr. Klein and I would go to D.C. and um, advocate and, and talk with senators and congressmen. Um, we spoke at congressional briefings, um, you know, and about, you know, this community and how we needed help and how, uh, you know, the rights that we deserve. And we were finding out pretty quickly that if you were not affiliated with an organization, they really... They listen listen to you if you were one of their constituents, but they didn't really want too much past that, you know. Mm. And so, many years ago, we wanted to do this, but Dr. Klein was still working at the time, and uh, I was doing my podcast and stuff like that. But then, you know, when kind of he uh, retired and and I um, lost my doctor and then found care again, I was kind of like sitting there with nothing to do. Uh, we decided we do that. So yeah, now we have National Pain Council has been going um, going on for a year now. We are an LLC, but we are a 50C3 uh, uh, pending. And we have four board members. We have over 2000 members. Wow. We have about 35 affiliates with other organizations. Um, and we're growing pretty fast. And basically, our main goal is uh, to help patients get the best care and medications that they need. And, and, you know, the rights that they are able to do that to help fix the doctor-patient relationship because wow. of what is currently going on um, and basically that. So That's so important. That, that's been one of the hardest things for me is learning how to communicate effectively with my doctors. And I feel like, you know, 
I, I'm 37 and I'm almost there. <laughs> yeah. And I've been on this journey for a long, long time and well, finally I learning, you know, how to speak to a doctor in a way that will get me results instead of, you know, uh, like learning how to deal with all the gaslighting, learning how to deal with, you know, doctors just not listening to you, recognizing which doctors are worth uh, you know, trying to build a relationship with and which aren't. It's all so, so hard. And I've thrown my hands up in the air many times and said, I wish someone would help me with this. And it sounds like that's yeah. what you're doing. That's so, that's so amazing. Well, yeah, you know, and I mean, that's because like, you know, living my life uh, all that my, through my twenties and thirties, I didn't really have anybody. So I had to figure this out myself, yeah. by myself. And we don't have a playbook, right. you know, on, on what to do. Um, are you supposed to only go to one doctor? Are you supposed to allow a doctor to treat you a certain way or not? Or how are they supposed to treat you? You know, as certain things start happening, um, when should you start looking for other care? Uh, are there other things that you can look for? You know, yeah. uh, should you try different medications, uh, different therapies? I mean, it, maybe you've, you know, you've gone as far as you could with the relationship with that doctor. I mean, and all these things, you're allowed to find different doctors. You're, it's okay if somebody is not working out for you, you know, but yeah. it, when you kind of get sick, you don't know that. You just kind of put all of your trust and faith into that doctor because that's all you know, because, you know, your whole world's being blown up. And and I've always been taught and looked at doctors as, you know, this respectable professional that will guide you and sit, give you the right direction and put you on the right things. And you listen to them. Mm -hmm. And over time, I found sometimes that's not always true, but there's a lot of times that there are, there's a lot of great doctors out there. Um, I would have to say though, in the last six, uh, I'm sorry, um, since 2016, it's changed a lot for the disabled community concern, especially if uh, you deal with, uh, issues that have pain, hmm. um, you know, because of the 2016 CDC guidelines uh, on opiates and yes, stuff like that, absolutely. patients are not able to get the pain medications that they need. Yeah, And, you know, this is one thing I've always looked at. Um, when you have a health issue, there's always something, a, pain, a medication that's for it. So if you have diabetes, you know, they, they give you insulin. Um, you know, if you have high cholesterol, they'll, they'll put you on a statin or whatever it is. Um, but if you have like a, an incurable painful disease, we don't really have anything that's our thing except pain medicine. Mm -hmm. And now that's being uh, taken away almost. Um, and, and I mean, supposedly the stats are there's what, like 40 million people out there that have a uh, uh, palliative care in, uh, um, intractable pain issues, like diseases and stuff like that. And they're saying about eight to 10 million are right now have been taken completely off those medications. But I honestly think it's higher yeah. from the amount of people that I speak with. Um, I don't think they know, honestly. No, I, I agree. It's a huge problem. Yeah. Like, and I think it was around 2016 when uh, I was on tramadol and it was uh, declared a schedule one drug and it was just yanked out of my hands. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I didn't fight it because I started like, that's around the time that uh, marijuana was legalized in Washington state where I live. And uh -huh. that ended up being a better solution for me. It, it was a little, I, it just felt like a safer solution, I guess. Yeah. Um, but the thing about that is that, you know, 
we're all just going to pot shops and asking what's good for pain. <laughs> yeah. It's completely well, unregulated. And I, I went through a process of learning what works for me. And, you know, I'm at the point now that when I do take tramadol, it is less helpful for me than, you know, my cannabis ritual, because that's, I've really dialed that in and found a really useful um, thing with that. But I, I just think about all the people in states where it's not legal or people who aren't comfortable going down that road because it is, it is completely unguided, you know, um, yeah. and you're just kind of experimenting on yourself. And I, you know, I, I, I did that because it was easier than trying to get pain management from a doctor. It's become so hard to get any prescriptions. I agree. Um, you know, but th this is the thing. I feel like uh, I've been my own lab rat my entire life anyway, because <laughs> we're all different. What works for me may not work for you, you know? So we yeah. kind of all, I, I feel like we've all probably tried different things. And the thing with pain medicine is, um, you know, none of us, I, I was scared to death when I first went on it. Like when I, I was in my twenties, when my doctor finally said, Janelle, you know, this is, the best you're going to get, you know, I mean, we can't, we don't have any surgeries we can do for you anymore. Um, I mean, at, at, at that point I've had five neck surgeries, you know, and um, I started having, I had fibromyalgia at the time I had Raynaud's disease and then I had something else, but my doctors kept saying it was my neck, but I knew it was something different later on. Many years later, I'd find out it was CRPS or complex mm -hmm. regional pain syndrome which I have in my upper body. Um, I'm actually in a state that doesn't have legalized uh, MMJ. So I have not ever tried any medical marijuana or anything like that. Would I be willing to? Absolutely. But it's not legal here. So I don't know. Honestly, I hear people talk about the different types. I could, Steve or something like that. I don't even know what they are. That's, <laughs> that's how bad it is. But, yeah. um, I, you know, I've heard some people have said that, uh, cannabis has been like a lifesaver for them. And then other people say, you know, it doesn't work for them or yeah. a combination is best. But then I find doctors don't always allow you to use cannabis if you take pain medicine Yeah, or, you know what I mean? So, yeah. which I don't understand either. <laughs> that all changed. Like I, I went through that change here in, in Seattle. So all the doctors were saying, well, we'd rather you just go buy cannabis. And I'm like, well, I, you know, I'm trying to like manage a disease here and you're just sending me out into the wild west of, of newly legal drugs, you know, <laughs> it just felt kind of insane, but yeah, it's, you know, it's something that comes up on the show quite frequently is that as laws around pain management change, doctors' recommendations change immediately with them. And it really makes you question like, what are doctors recommending and why, you know? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and I, I've definitely been through that thing where I used to just trust everything doctors told me. And now I run it through this filter of, of mistrust because they've, a, a lot of doctors have proven themselves to not have my best interests in mind. Yeah. You know, and um, at National Pain Council, a lot of the people I work with, they, this is the, like, I mean, they were on their medications and then suddenly they were just taken off and they didn't know why yeah. they have not, they don't have any clue what's going on with the whole side of that part of it, you know, with opioids and like, they would see like that, you know, on TV about, uh, the illicit fentanyl and stuff like that on the streets, but they didn't know that their medications were going to be taken away from them because their doctor suddenly got scared. Yeah. And, and that's like the first that they're hearing of it. Um, I'm getting Now some of these people also, they've all, they've been taken off of it years ago, have had no quality of life since then and come to me and are just, I mean, a shell of basically who they were. Mm. And, 
you know, and I've been there though, too. So I, I, I understand that completely. Um, and I think that's where, you know, how I'm able to help people is just because of everything that I've been through in the last 28 years of my life, dealing with all these health issues, you know, um, and, and, and also just and, and being able to put them with the connections that I've been able to make with, uh, throughout of the doctors over the years. So it, it was kind of natural for me to kind of get into this position to be able to do this, you know, yeah, it's really cool. It's really, you know, it, it sounds really, really helpful. Like it, I, I've just thought back to the places in, in my journey where the, things were looking bleak and that's yeah. the type of help I would have wanted for sure. You know, I, I had to fight through it on my own alone. You know, I, luckily I have the support of friends and family. You know, I think about the people who don't, and I, I just yeah. don't know how you get through it. You know, like that's how I got through it. The days where I couldn't advocate for myself, um, you know, my loved ones are there for me. So having an organization like that to advocate for people, so, so important. I really, I'm, I'm really excited to hear about that. Yeah, no. And, and you know, and it is because I was one of those people that really didn't have a lot of um, support around me. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, my husband at the time, was away a lot and he was not the, he was, he was abusive, you know, yeah. I mean, over the years it became that way. We were married about 10 years total. Um, and I would say that was probably my darkest years, it, those 10 years. So uh, that was probably from like 26 to 36. And um, I'll never forget like 2007 to 2009. I really didn't understand what, uh, depression was until I was in that depression. Mm. And I mean, it was just like, I could not see a shining light on the other side. I was, you know, I, 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 I was having um, reactions from all these different medications that the doctors would put me on. I mean, they would just put me on all this stuff or they want me to try like um, all these different therapies or, or ketamine infusions and stuff like that. And I just felt so drugged out or so tired of being a lab rat. Basically, I just got to the point where I was just like, okay, I don't think I have to try every single thing that they tell me to do. Like, I don't think I have to go on every medication they tell me to go on, you know, like, and, and that's when I kind of started realizing okay, I'm not going to do that. And at the time, I still didn't know other people yet. And I just kind of started creating like a structure for myself almost of like, you know, sometimes less is more, you know, and, and, and that's kind of what I was learning. And then when I started meeting other people and other doctors and stuff like that, I realized, yeah, I didn't really have to kind of do all that. Um, and it's interesting now that I, I advocate when I go into, if it's a doctor that, you know, is my doctor, I feel like they almost uh, like that because a few of the doctors that I've met, they've, they've still tried to kind of run their little thing on me and, and, you know, and they were, they were pushing things that they, that wasn't right, you know? Um, but I'll tell you the doctor I have right now. I mean, he is awesome. He appreciates what I do. In fact, he started getting involved with like, you know, some of the stuff that I'm involved with. And so, it's kind of fun when you're able to do that. And and actually that's one thing I try to teach um, people, you know, when they're talking to their doctor, let them see you as a human, you know? And I think um, another thing is, is you could talk about what life was like uh, when you were either on certain medications or whatever did work for you and what life has been like when you haven't had that. And it seems like they understand that, especially when you start talking about specifics, you know, mm -hmm. 
Um, so yeah, that, I mean, that's one part that we do, but, um, but, you know, I was just thinking like when I'm talking to these to people, it's just things that I've learned over the years myself. So it's like not any science, you know, or anything major, it's just kind of paying attention and figuring out kind of, you know, what seemed to kind of work, what didn't knowing doctors now, you know, what I know, uh, what they're going through kind of being mindful of that, but at the same time, letting them know, Hey, you know, I need to live too. If you can't do this, maybe I need to go to a different type of doctor, you know? Yeah. Can- yeah, totally. And you're right. It's not, it, it, it's scientific in the fact that it's like experimentation and then action, but it's not mm-hmm. scientific in the way that you need to go to school for it. It's like, you need to have experience in, failing over and over <laughs> oh my gosh exactly yeah. well that's exactly how i felt too. <laughs> i can't tell you how many doctors i went to throughout my life and and i you do you fail yep. a lot yep um you know i, I don't know if, if it was like that for you or not but see i was put on uh pain medication and i'm talking about like the heavier stuff pretty early on i think it's just because of um the injuries i had and how bad they were and um you know, in 2012, my doctor told me, you know, Janelle, this is the best you're going to get. So however you could find a quality of life, do it, whatever that is, do it. And it really kind of started to make me think about things a little differently. You know, like, like, this is not a game anymore. There's going to be no more surgeries that is going to fix me. Like, so I need to kind of start really figuring this out. And what I started to do is I wanted to build a team around me, just like when I played sports, like I want my doctors to be on my team. So that's something I tell people to do now too. Like when you come at them, just be like, Hey, what can we do? Like, how can, how can we make this work? Am I going to be able to go and uh, ride horses again or go fishing or whatever you'd like to do? Can I do that? Yeah. I mean, and I went through a, a similar shift in perspective where it's like, I felt like I could either look for a diagnosis or have quality of life, but I couldn't do both at the same time. And I've learned that you have to do both at the same time. You know, like the whole, I I would, if I could tell myself something early on in the process, it would be like, don't forget about your quality of life. You know, like, even though it seems impossible because you're in so much pain, what's the best way that you can live in that pain in that moment for you on that day? You know, what can you do for yourself on that day? That'll help even the slightest bit. Uh, And, that mindset, you know, has really, really changed my outlook. And now it, it's, it's made the whole diagnostic process, which I'm still inside of, you know, still trying to get a diagnosis. It's made it all, all so much easier. Um, but so I, let, let's, uh, I want to dive into your story a little bit. And I, I usually ask this question a lot earlier on, <laughs> but this is all really important stuff that we're talking about. And I've just been really, you know, I, I didn't want to interrupt the flow of this conversation because it's all such good stuff. But you've mentioned uh, several of the health conditions that you lived with over the years. So let's let's uh, dive into this a little bit. Uh, so Janelle, what is your major pain? I know it's going to be complicated and multi-layered, but let's let's lay it all out for our listeners. Um, my major pain is my neck issues that have uh, over time evolved into a incurable disease. You know, that's very painful. Um, and it's, and, and then it's evolved into more and more. It seems like when you get one, you get more. So, um, so originally it was, I broke my neck when I was 16. I was in a car accident. I was coming home from softball practice. It was a Friday afternoon. I'll never forget. And I was coming around route 118 and 
I was stopped making a left-hand turn. There was oncoming cars and that's it. That's all I remember. But I found out that um, a drunk driver hit me in a pickup truck going 55 miles an hour. And um, my car was thrown forward, went into oncoming traffic, spun, and then it ended up in the other side um, in the berm. And I guess the people behind the truck they were out in the fields looking for me because they thought I was in a, a, a little rabbit Volkswagen convertible, an 81 Volkswagen convertible. So they thought I was in the field somewhere. Um, I was actually laid over um, inside of my car. I wasn't breathing. I was dead on site. And um, a guy, Jason, that I went to high school with, he was actually a few cars behind me too. He uh, was on the, uh, he volunteered for the fire department. So he came over and I guess put my head up straight and, you know, until the uh, ambulance and, and people could get there, but they ended up life flighting me. Um, it, you know, it's interesting. Cause like when I, I remember hearing them saying they they needed to cut off my seatbelt and I guess I gave them my dad's girlfriend's phone number at the time, but I don't remember that at all. Um, I, the only thing I remember is I remember opening my eyes and there was this woman in front of me that was like really beautiful, dark hair. She looked like she had like, um, like, cause this was in 96 and she, or 94. And it looked like she was like, maybe, I don't know, fifties outfit or something. But the crazy thing is later on, it looked exactly like my great grandmother wow. when she was like younger. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And she was passed already by then, but I honestly think she was my like guardian angel and saved me. So, wow. So you, you were pronounced dead on the scene. Yep. Yep. And they like flighted me to a hospital um, where they found out I broke my C3, C4 vertebrae. And my doctor said, he doesn't know how I lived. Um, he said, you know, and, and, or how I'm not paralyzed. So, I mean, you know, right then that was something major. Um, I, I, you know, I, I kind of, I was in the hospital for about nine days. Um, they ended up, my dad talked them out of putting um, a halo on me because normally they put a halo on you. Is that where they but drill it, into your skull to keep it in yeah, place? Yeah. Yeah. He told them that I am like the most boring girl. I don't like doing anything. I'll sit home and do whatever they need me to do. So they ended up putting this two post brace on me. And I'm not that type of girl. I mean, I was in every sport you can imagine. <laughs> anything outdoors I could do, I would do it. I was a huge adrenaline junkie. So whatever that, you know, can make your adrenaline go, that was me. Um, so, but I did, I, I had to wear a two post brace for six, like about six months. And then I had to wear a soft collar for about two more months. Um, and during this time, so this is my sophomore year. It was in June. So it was going into my junior year. And that's the time when you have like college coaches looking at you and stuff like that for sports. Mm -hmm. And I knew early on that because I, I was already playing in the, um, on the U.S. team for the under uh, 16 and under girls and or 18 and under. I'm sorry. I was 16 under and then I did 18 and under. Um, but um, it was just, you know, it was just like a really pivotal period in my life and that junior year is when college coaches usually look at you and that whole year I didn't play like field hockey softball soccer nothing um so it was like a really difficult thing and then the other thing was is I wasn't allowed to do anything except with my lower body you know so and finally like um 
that winter, my doctor gave me the go ahead that I could start like working out really lightly and doing things. Um, eventually I kind of like worked my way back in and, and, you know, when I came back and I still went on to, you know, get a college scholarship and then, you know, play on the U S team and stuff like that and, and play in the, uh, on the B squad for the Olympics. So that was pretty amazing. Um, uh, you know, but I, there was always, I don't know, it, it kind of like, I feel like if that never happened, uh, my sports career probably would have been gone much further anyway, because field hockey, you really can't do much, but I probably would have been a coach. I probably would have, you know, done things differently. Um, I think I would have been at a higher level than I even got to compete at just because every second that you're not practicing that person that is out there that's hungry is practicing and wanting to beat you. Mm -hmm. They were doing that. So I felt like they kind of had a year up on me than I had for my age. And so it, that was a little difficult, but you know, regardless, I still went on and I did everything I could. And I, you know, I'm one third thing I'm not is I've never given up at anything. Um, that's why even with um, these health issues, I just kind of looked at it as another kind of, not a game so much, but I, in my mind, it was like competition for myself. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not going to let myself go down this road, you know? And I would, I always had goals for myself. Um, the thing with health, my health issues is, is I had to learn really early on not to overdo it. And I was still okay at that point. But then in 2003, when I was in another car accident and I broke my neck again <laughs> and I was paralyzed, that kind of really changed my entire life. That was probably, you know, the major pain to everything in my life of that changed it all. Yeah, I can't imagine going through that once, let alone twice. Like, that's insane. Yeah. I can't even believe that you're talking to me right now. I mean, I, I'm still trying to wrap my, ma my mind around the fact that you were pronounced dead during the first accident. And was it your, your friend, you said his name was Jason, like holding your neck in place? So that you could yeah. start breathing again? Is that what saved your life? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, actually, because, yeah, because I mean, like, my airway was cut off and, you know, the ambulances weren't there. We're in a little country uh, uh, high school, you know, and yeah. anything that's close, and there's nothing there that close. So, um, and, you know, and that's why I was life flighted because there was no hospitals mm -hmm. that you could get to within a few, you know, a, a quick enough time. So, um, you know, actually, I, I, it's interesting when I was going through that, the first time I remember anything was actually when we went over the grade um, at the hospital to go from the elevator to the main floor. Like at one point, at one of those that we went over, I finally, that's when pain hit me and I just woke, I came out of whatever I was in, you know? And I just, I guess I sat up screaming, my dad said, because he, he was right next to me and, and, I, I just, I, I, I went out again from the pain, but yeah, I mean, it's really like when you go through stuff like that, you don't really know what's real, what's not, because it's like, I thought I saw like, <laughs> like, like military men, like, you know, I heard the helicopter and I thought I was in the military or something like that. It's yeah. all weird. Like the things well, that you think of when that happens. It sounds like you kind of crossed the threshold and then came back. I mean, I, you, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure. I yeah. mean, like they, uh, I, I definitely believe there's something else out there. Um, I don't know. What about you? Do you believe in that? You know, I'm, I, I like to keep my options open. <laughs> like yeah. I'm a very spiritual person. I, 
I uh, definitely, you know, I, it's hard to explain. I, I really like the idea of the Force in Star Wars about how yeah. there's like life creates this energy and that that energy kind of binds us all together, you know, sort of like a universal energy that we create just by being alive. So it's like separate from us, but includes us in some way. That's an idea that I like. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not into, I, my family is Jewish. I'm not into any um, religious practices or anything like that. I have respect for people who do, but it's just not for me. I'm kind of a, you know, person who likes to take in information and apply the things that I like to myself and not be dogmatic about that in any way. Yeah, no, I, well, you know, I never really, like my personal beliefs, I've never believed that I should ever put it on anybody else, but I always am interested in hearing what other people think and believe about things. I think um, I've struggled kind of uh, with the belief of God throughout, especially going through hard. I think anytime you go through something really, really serious or mm -hmm. there's death or, or something like, you know, say if like somebody very close to you dies, it's you question everything suddenly, yeah. you know? And between my health issues and just life in general, I mean, I've gone back and forth. And I know what you mean about your energy. I believe there is an energy, too, that it's like, but I also believe there's a spiritual side to things, too. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? So, I think there's something together with that, but I don't know what it is. And I don't think we're supposed to know until we go. <laughs> yeah, so. I love that. Yeah, like I, I studied, uh, I, I had got a minor in religious studies in college. And okay. I really liked learning about Taoism, um, which is like, you know, the Tao is the way, and it's something that you're not supposed to define. It's like we recognize and acknowledge this, um, this flow of spiritual energy, and we feel connected to it. And if you open yourself to it, it can kind of help to guide your decision making or give you a sense of your broader place in the universe. But we don't define it because we don't know what it is because we can't because we're just humans, you know? And I, yeah. I, really, like, I really like that mindset, um, you know? I, I just I like the idea of uh, being sort of aware of feeling that there is more, but not trying to define it because, you know, how if we try to put something in a box that we can't know, then we're in some ways limiting what our perception of it could be. Yeah, I, yeah, I know what you mean by that. Um, I also think that do you ever feel like like when you're around certain people, there's this energy, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Good energy. But yeah. So like every time I get together with my dad, my sister, my brother, and I like growing up, um, you know, it was just this good energy between us always. And every time we get together, it's, there's that still there. Um, actually with my current boyfriend, I feel like this, like same energy with him, you know what I mean? And it's yeah. kind of like, it's um, like a really exciting upbeat, like, and it kind of pulls you up like that too. You know, even though I'm normally like that, sometimes uh, it helps to be around other people that do that, you know? Um, and, you know, I think fighting, um, I feel like it's been a fight throughout my life to just get my health in order and to keep it in a certain way. I've had to use, um, you know, kind of there's this energy I've had to like kind of learn to live with or, or kind of like kind of pull myself up with. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, I guess when in meditation, sometimes you could get to that, you know, you could kind of like feel like I could feel 
I could put my energy out into the world sometimes. I don't know if, if I'm talking weird or not, but <laughs> like, even if I'm like rubbing my boyfriend's back, there's sometimes like, if I, I don't know, or just sometimes we'll just really connect and he could actually feel like whatever I'm putting in, or he'll start saying like, his hands are really starting to bother him. And he's like, I know you're giving that to me. Stop. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. And it's not, it's not that I'm giving him anything or intentionally doing it, but I think there is some type of energy that you can kind of convert your energy back and forth. Does that make sense? I don't even, I don't yeah, know yeah. if I should go there. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm, a, I'm also a person who's very susceptible to other people's energy. And I definitely feel that combined energy of many people being in the same place. It's like when you go to a sporting event or, you know, a rock concert or for some people church, I think. I think there's that that communal intention and that communal energy that can be really powerful where you feel yeah. like you're a part of something greater than yourself. And, I, you know, I think most people have experienced something like that. And I think a lot of people equate that feeling with God and um, you know, who knows? <laughs> I, I yeah. for, for me personally, I like to think of it as like, you know, this like combined human energy, like almost like the force, you know, this like life energy, I guess, um, that exists because we exist. I, I like that way of thinking about it, but I'm not, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the movie, the Kevin Smith movie Dogma, where he, uh -huh. uh, there's a character that says that it's better to have ideas than beliefs because ideas can change. And I've always uh -huh. really liked that thought, you know, it's like when, yeah. you, when you believe something without questioning it, you can find yourself becoming very miserable. <laughs> well, um, like when you I wrestle with your beliefs, it. when you, when you question your beliefs and then, and then come out the other side, believing something new or believing the same thing, either way, I feel like that sort of um, making sure that it's a personal choice is really important. I agree. I, you know, like, uh, I guess like that com comes up to like, you know, when with doctors, like I used to believe hands down that doctors were going to just save me and like whatever they say goes, but I kind of learned that it's okay to question things. It's okay to find other opinions. It's okay to kind of research it and look around. Um, you know, doctors that don't allow you to ask questions or bring in information to ask, you know, hey, I found this and, you know, is this safe for me? I, um, you know, and ask what the risks are, you know, what percentage will it help actually uh, to kind of get all that ahead of time. It's really important. Yeah. Yeah, you really transition us back perfectly because if we're talking about blind faith and the mm -hmm. dangers of blind, blind faith, that's so applicable with your doctors. <laughs> like this, you know, we were all kind of born, well, not born, but we're all trained by society to think that um, we have to believe everything that a doctor tells us. And I have had different doctors tell me polar opposite things about the same condition, you know, multiple really? times, multiple mm -hmm. times. Like, I, I've had doctors tell me that I should do something. Other doctors tell me I shouldn't do something. Like, this is why you get second opinions, uh, yeah. because doctors disagree with each other. And sometimes doctors misread things or make mistakes. Um, like, I, I just recently had a doctor make a mistake about something. And he's like, doctors are human. And, you know, to think about doctors as being... Like th this whole thing that like doctors are gods and you have to follow them blindly. That's very dangerous. Um, doctors are humans. Yeah. And if you can find a human being that is willing to advocate for you and fight for you, you're in the best shape you can be with the doctor patient relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And I much rather my doctor tell me, you know what? I don't know too much about that. 
um, yeah. I'll either find out for it. Totally. About it. I'll, I'll get, I'll set you up with another doctor. You know, I'd rather that over them just lying to you. And the thing is, is I found out that some do, you know, a yeah. lot of doctors actually don't know what CRPS is. And now <laughs> like if, if, you know, if I have to go to a new a doctor, like I, I started having seizures in 2019, right before COVID really hit. And um, we don't know why they think that. Uh, so the doctors that, you know, know me well um, and I, that I've advocated with and stuff like that, that know my history and stuff like that. They think it's the mi- mixture between I've had mi- so many serious uh, concussions early on in my life. And then now that I'm in my forties and my hormones are changing, the mixture of that is causing these seizures, Mm. but I really don't know. The first time I ever had, when I went to the hospital, they treated me like a drug addict. They actually, when the EMTs came, the first thing they did, like my boyfriend gave them my medicine bottles. He told them what I had, you know, he told them that I had CRPS and everything like that. They're like, Oh, she's definitely overdosing. They gave me like two rounds of uh, Narcan. When I still wasn't coming out of it, they were like, okay, something's really going on here. Shoot, it's not a drug overdose, you know? And obviously, at that point, they, they, they counted all my pills. They were all there. So, um, you know, I, when I finally came out of that, because, uh, because of the Narcan and stuff like that, that led to like 12 days. Of, I had no memory. Um, I, they kept me in the hospital overnight. I went into immediate withdrawals. They didn't even give me pain medication, the medications that I was on, they didn't give me out of the hospital when I was able to take them again, at which point my boyfriend started giving them to me when I was supposed to be taking them, you know? Um, And it just really, I have this real fear of ERs now because, well, not just because of that, there's been so many times that I've been mistreated there, but um, you know, I mean, that's a horrible thing to happen. Um, And, and, and I know it happens so often to people uh, I, I was in an accident uh, two months ago uh, and it was just like a, it wasn't a major accident, but you know, we were hit from behind and then we hit a car in front of us. And, um, and I mean, they took me right to the hospital and they gave me like a CAT scan and an MRI of my neck. Cause they just wanted to make sure my hardware is okay. that I didn't break anything again. Um, and you know, nothing looked bad at the time, but um, you know, I had to go see a, 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 neuro, a neurosurgeon again and, you know, he did say that I have like a new disc below the last one that I've had surgery on that it looks like, you know, today I'm not going to need surgery, but it looks like, you know, at some point I'm going to again. So that's like, ugh. so, I mean, but, you know, I, I forgot like what it's like when you start having new issues pop up again. And I'll be honest, even with this whole seizure thing, I, so the whole year, so they started uh, um, October, 2019, then COVID hit. I was supposed to go and see a neuro or neurologist, you know, in like, I don't know, March or February. And they wouldn't take me, they canceled it. So, um, you know, and I just, and then in April, I had another major seizure, like a, like a, a grand mal seizure where I was puking and I was, uh, it was really bad. I mean, I was all, I, I sprained my ankle and my knee from, um, jerking like and posturing wow. and stuff. And again, they treated me terribly. They want, uh, so the EMTs that came, they again wanted to, uh, you know, do a, um, uh, give me uh, Narcan. My boyfriend was like, you guys tried to do that to her last time. You know, this is a seizure. 
would you just please, you know, she, she, I, cause I banged my head. I had no memory. Um, you know, my ankle, and my knee were bad. So, um, when I woke up in the hospital, nobody was allowed to come in with me because this is April, 2020. Mm -hmm. And they basically, I wasn't able to speak. So when I first came in, like the, um, the EMT tried to give me, I guess, a few, uh, uh, IVs to start an IV and they weren't able to, I have a terrible arms from CRPS and from all of the uh, IVs I've had over the years from all the surgeries and everything like that. So it's like, I have a lot of uh, scar tissue in my arms. Anyway, um, when I got there, the nurse that when they were, you know, rolling me in, the nurse was like, sweetheart. Now those, those marks on your arm, are those from illicit drugs or is that, you know, what is that? And I couldn't speak because I just had a major seizure. Yeah. And so she goes up, oh, she's definitely on drugs. And she told everybody there, I was a drug addict. And so the, my entire, oh my gosh, when I would be, I go in and out because I was, I continued to have like these mini seizures, <laughs> like after the major one. And they never checked my leg, my knee, my head, nothing. They just left me alone in a room. When I did finally come out of it at one point, they, there was two men holding my legs down and a lady was shoving a catheter up me trying to. The first time it, it didn't go in and I had like a, a uh, what do you call them? Oh, a blood, a hematoma like down there. And then she did it again. And I mean, I'll tell you, it felt like, like, right. Like I felt right. I felt I couldn't speak up for myself. Nobody was there for me. All the doctors and the nurses treated me terribly, you know, and, and I don't know, I guess they were trying to, because my blood came, like there was nothing except what should have been in my blood. So I guess they felt like I, they needed my urine. That's the only thing I can make of why they did all of that. Cause I never lost like my, my, you know, I never went number one or number two or anything like that. Never have in the past. So there was no reason for that. I don't feel. And um, anyway, I didn't talk for like a month when I got out of the hospital that time. And it was just such like a really scarring thing. Yeah. And so these seizures, like my pain management doctor kind of put me on a few different anti-seizure meds because I couldn't get into a neurologist. And now that I've been able to get into a neurologist, I have been scared to go to one. I don't want to go to a new doctor because I don't want them to look at me because I do have everything right now, how it needs to be. Like I have my pain doctor and I get the medications I need and the amounts I need. And I don't want that to be changed. And I don't want a doctor looking at me only because of my medications. Like, it seems like when you go in and you have something new, if you're on, especially pain meds, that's all they'll focus on. And that's my fear of instead yeah. of looking at what's wrong, what's going on with me. You know, it's a horrible, I, horrible situation, a horrible catch 22 where it's like, I, like what you, you need medical care. So you want to go to the hospital, but yeah. when you're mistreated to that severity, it creates like legitimate fear of doing it again. You know, oh, I'm yeah. so sorry you went through that. That sounds incredibly traumatizing. And now I you carry so like, I'm sure you have some like PTSD and trauma that you carry from going to these people for help and, and being incredibly mistreated absolutely i mean you know it started years ago i mean especially before 2016 and stuff like that um doctors would start to want to like pull me down on certain meds 
and I was doing good. Like I was work, I was able to work out regularly again. I was kind of building my life back up. I was, I just, so, so after my divorce and I was in Chicago and stuff like that. And I want to give, like, I want people to realize, like, I, th- I think this is something that I was so scared of when I got like, when I was disabled and stuff like that, I was afraid to try new things. I was afraid that I couldn't go off and like live on my own and do these, like do things on my own because of my disabilities. But you know what I, in, after um, I left my husband finally, and it was such a terrible marriage and, you know, I kind of got away from that. I started to kind of like build a structure again. I started to like, uh, have some friends again in my life. And I, I moved towards where my family was. But one thing I noticed is, is warmer weather would always help me out. And like, I would have a longer, I felt like winters, I'd be hibernating. And you know, when, when you live up north, it's just like, it's winter until April sometimes, you know, so and it's like cold weather just is really bad for me. So I ended up after that, my dad, always I always told my dad, I wanted to move south. And my dad mentioned to me, why don't you move south? Like you have the chance right now. And, you know, that's scary. I mean, I'm disabled. I don't have a job. I don't know anybody where I'm going. I don't have a ton of money, but I just decided to kind of like, I, and I did it a crazy way. I, I, I threw a dart at, um, at, well, I I knew I wanted to live either in Florida and Georgia or North Carolina or South Carolina. So I had them and I threw a dart and it landed on Wilmington, North Carolina. And I started looking into it and I knew somebody that had family there and they told me they loved it there. So I took, I, I looked in um, Craigslist. I took a week. I went down. The first place actually I looked at was on Carolina beach, right on the beach. I felt in love and I could afford it. And it was like, you know, everything I needed and wanted. And I had a little dog and I was allowed to have my dog there. So um, a month later, I moved down there and I have never looked back. And it was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. <laughs> wow. I got to start like light up over again. You know what I mean? And like do whatever I wanted it to be. I didn't have to be disabled to anybody here, you know, because I was doing well enough at that point. And I, you know, uh, that's why when I moved here and I started had, having doctors like wanting to change my medicines and stuff like that, I was like, whoa, why are you doing that? Yeah. And like, I had a doctor that didn't even tell me what he'd do is he'd write the script and, and he'd describe it and I'd go pick it up and he was lowering it. He wouldn't tell me he was doing it until I pick it up. Hmm. He did it to me twice. And at that point, then I started saying, I, I'm, I'm out of here. Like I have to find another doctor, yeah. you know, yeah. at the time, at the time I felt like you could do that still but i feel like now it's really hard to find doctors it like you know what i mean to treat you uh especially when you have some serious serious health issues going on yeah totally i want to fill in some gaps in your story um make sure i've i've following everything correctly so tell me a little bit more about your second car accident and and what happened to your body after that and i i want to um get into the CRPS a little bit, because I think that's something that might be unfamiliar to people. And that started after your second car accident, right? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. talk, talk, start at that second car accident again, talk me through that in the CRPS. Okay. So like I was um, like, I don't know, 23, 24. And um, I was going out with coworkers and it was Friday evening and um, uh, I wanted to go home early. And so I, you know, one of my friends, I, I, I came with a group of friends and they weren't ready to go yet. So 
another group of friends is leaving. So I went with them. I didn't realize that the driver was so drunk. Mm. And um, we actually, when we were going onto the highway, he like went through a red light and we got T-boned. And um, I kind of remember that. Well, I don't remember that. Actually, like I remember I hit my head and that was like the, the last thing I remember. And then I woke up in a hospital and I was in shock and um, they released me actually. Like, and like I had my roommate come and pick me up. And so he came and picked me up and Saturday morning I woke up, like I just went to bed. I don't really remember. I was kind of in shock and I just went home. And when I woke up um, Saturday morning, my entire left arm and hand was just like lump, limp. Like, I mean, it was hanging hmm. and I couldn't, I had no feeling. And the only thing I did have feeling it was I had a lot of pain in my neck, but that's it. And it was like the oddest thing. I mean, like my arm was just like hanging and I remember like I was swinging around and stuff like that. So I put it in like a, a little, um, a sling. Cause I didn't know what to do. It was just kind of hanging there. And, um, I went to my regular doctor on Monday. I don't know why I didn't think to go to the hospital. I guess I was just still in shock kind of, you know, and, um, my regular, my primary care said, uh, sweetheart, you need to see a neurosurgeon. And I guess he didn't think it was that serious though. So Wednesday I went to see a neurosurgeon, like within 30 minutes, they had me in surgery Wow. and I had no clue like how serious this was at all still. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, okay, you know, and it, everything went so quickly once they said I needed surgery. I mean, my parents like were so scared to death. They didn't know what happened, you know? And um, they didn't know it was going to be this bad. So like they both, I was living in Ohio at the time. They were both on the East coast. So they were like either flying out or driving in. And like the, I was already in surgery. Um, I remember when I came out of that surgery though, my surgeon asked me to hold up my arm, like kind of, and, um, and he's like, hold this up. And I was able to, and he started to cry. So I started to cry because I didn't know why he was crying. And, and then he just said like, you know, you don't know how lucky you are. He's like, I mean, the percentage that you would even get your arm back was so little. Wow. And so I just like, I just remember that. And it was just such a major thing. And like after that accident, so I broke my C4, C5 this time. So first, first accident was C3, C4. This is C4, C5. So you and had a actually- broken C4, C5 for a couple of days, just yeah. numb and it, arm. And it was they released you from the hospital with a broken neck. Yeah. And it was infused in my spinal column, obviously, you know, so yeah. So, um, and what that did though, is because the days that it was like that, um, my muscles kind of, uh, stretched, but at the time I didn't even know it because we were so worried about my neck. I didn't even think anything was wrong with my shoulder, you know, but, um, later on, I found out that there was actually probably a tear in there, but at that point it was like, so late and shoulder surgery is like really difficult. So mm-hmm. I decided I didn't want to go and do that, but yeah, that accident, it took me about two and a half years to be able to get full rotation movement. Every, I mean, I had to really learn everything pretty much. And I, I never have had full feeling back. I've never regained that. So, wow. um, but that kind of was like the beginning of all the surgeries I needed. It was like one after the next I'd need every few years, like every two to three years, my neck, that next disc would go, or there was something wrong within it. Or <laughs> like my, the one surgery I had to get because I broke my fusion. Cause I took 
Kilkerson karate and <laughs> it didn't heal yet. And I mean, I, that's the dumb stuff I, if I did too, because I didn't know when to say no. And I still thought I could do the things I could do. You know what I mean? Like I still Absolutely. thought I was, we all healthy. do that. It's yeah. like, oh, I feel good. I'm going to do a thing. And then you're like, I don't feel so good anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's kind of, I realized, okay, I have to stop being so stupid and like not do things like that anymore. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah. So after that accident, that's kind of when um, fibromyalgia started. I, in fact, within two years, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Although at the time, fibromyalgia was thought of as like a, it wasn't real. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it was like a, made up kind of thing. Like if doctors didn't know what it was, that's what they kind of say it was, but I really did have it, you know? Um, you know, I was tested many times and several doctors said it. Um, and then that kind of led to more surgeries, more, more health issues. I eventually had brain odds, which is like, um, uh, a thing in your hand where, you you know, like I get white at my knuckles and I'm red everywhere else. And it's like, um, I don't know. I kind of think sometimes I don't know the difference between CRPS and some of these other diseases. You know what I mean? Yeah. Tell me I, again. I can't tell where fibromyalgia is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where, yeah, where fibromyalgia starts. Because they're all chronic yeah. pain conditions. Tell, tell me again the, what CRPS stands for. Um, it's complex regional pain syndrome. Yeah. So it's autoimmune disease. Um, basically, your body is in a constant fight or flight. So, so like when you have an accident and you have a trauma to your, say your hand or whatever, you know, your body goes into a fight or flight mode, you know, to tell your body, okay, you have to go and fix that right there. You know, instead of my body, um, my body constantly thinks something is going on. So they constantly, it constantly thinks there's a trauma. Wow. So it never stops doing that. It never went back to reset. So even Um, when you're relaxed, your body's still panicking. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Um, This is complicated. It really (laughs) is. I can't imagine dealing with that. I mean, because it's so frustrating because it's like just accidents upon accidents upon negligence. um, Like none of these things needed to happen, but they all did, you know, like how, how does that, how, how do you look at the world? You know, how do you avoid being angry all the time? You know, I think there was a period where I was, yeah. uh, I mean, big time. And I think that's when I kind of went into, you know, I, I would have to get all these surgeries, surgery after surgery. And sometimes I, I have to question, did I really need that surgery? You know, because I'm not sure always, but at some point, um, all of that trauma that I was getting to my neck from the surgeries and stuff like that led to these diseases that are incurable. And yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, uh, you know, I had to trust doctors for a while cause I didn't know what else to do. Um, but then over time I kind of realized, okay, yeah, I could ask, I, I could ask questions. Um, I don't have to agree with them. Maybe this isn't for me. You know, like if a doctor says, um, I think you should get uh, shots in your neck, I've already got those. I've had 13 of those in the past. I'm not going to do those again. And now I found out, oh, well, that could lead to uh, adhesive arachnoiditis, which a doctor said I had, but I'm not like, I mean, there's just so many things I could possibly have, you know, and I'm just not going to, at some point you just stop counting them. And I just say, okay, if there's something you could do for it, great. But if there's not, 
I really don't want to know about it anymore. I need to focus on my life now, like yeah. and, and my quality of life and like where it's at and not worry about the diseases and get caught up in all that stuff. Because at first it was about that. It was finding out like what is causing this. And, and cause I thought there would be something that could change it, you know, but then I started getting things that health issues that there is no cure for. There is nothing you can do. And that kind of could get really scary and hopeless and kind of like, okay. But um, instead of becoming hopeless, I kind of really uh, put all my energy into kind of like helping others really, or, and I I kind of started to build up a point where like, I have a whole routine that I do and it took me years and years to figure this out between the com. All right. So what works for me is a combination of medications. Um, uh, I like to do meditation in the mornings or just to kind of get my head clear I like to advocate. I like to go fishing on the weekends. Um, I like to work out. I, I stretch. I go to a chiropractor. Um, I had stem cell injections that were like life-changing to me, mm. life-changing. Um, and my, my medications are really important. That's kind of the glue to everything else. Without those, I can't do everything else. Uh, but I could do any of those things as long as I have that. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Do you, do you mind sharing so with I us kind of, what, what medications you're taking? Um, uh, I don't like to talk about like, you know, actual medications, yeah, but that's I take totally fine. Totally medication. Fine. I take a muscle relaxer. Um, sometimes I take, so when I have a CRPS flare, I'll take like um, a steroid and an antihistamine because mm. um, the steroid is for anti, for inflammation and the antihistamine. I bike, break out in these terrible hives. <laughs> Like, um, because my body is just kind of going in overload constantly. The biggest thing with my, okay. So we asked, you asked earlier about CRPS and complex regional pain syndrome. So you could get it, uh, in one hand or one foot or leg, and it usually then will mirror. So I had it first in my um, left hand and arm, and then it mirrored to my right arm and hand, uh, my right arm and hand, sorry. And then it started kind of going, um, my mouth, my head, my face, my hair, like I would lose hair sometimes. Wow. I've lost a lot of teeth or like I had to get a lot of root canals, like, like my teeth will just get brittle and break. Um, and then I'll get these like hives. I call them CRPS hives. Like when I have a flare, it's just like, they're weird. They're like round. this is gross they get kind of pussy until they dry out and then when they dry it kind of almost looks like a burn and then they dry out and then they'll kind of like flake off but i found out like i used to hide those for years from people i'd be so embarrassed and i wouldn't go out of the house until i didn't have them anymore and i found out it's like a real normal thing for patients with crps to have and um and like i never would share it with my doctor even like Mm. like you know and um but what we're learning now that I have doctors that I do trust is like, you know, when you have a lot of it has to do with inflammation, your body is in in inflammation constantly. Like my hands are constantly swollen in the mornings when I wake up, always swollen, ice cold to touch red feels like they're on fire though. I mean, it's like, and, and when I'm in a flare, they swell up to three times the normal size. I mean, they, I call them sausage fingers. <laughs> like I have the most grosses, yeah. Um, what I'm scared about now is that it spreads. So when I was in that accident two months ago, I was so scared to death that it was going to spread full body or go to my lower body or move into my intestines, which 
it might've already had moved to my heart and stuff because um, I get tachycardia that's developed over time. Um, so I don't know, but um, like a lot of this stuff, I mean, I have all these like weird symptoms and what I found though is CRPS really is all of these. It's just when a doctor knows what it is, they'll understand it. But when they don't, it's just like, they, they, they have no clue. I could tell they're overwhelmed, you know, and it, it's, it's frustrating for me because especially when they lie and they say that they know what they're doing and they don't, you know, yeah, it, that's when it's scary. How well known is CRPS? Do you run into a lot of doctors who have no idea what it is? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, a lot, especially like if I, that's why I try to stay away from the emergency room. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't like to go there because they don't know what it is. Oftentimes once in a while they do. Um, my current pain management doctor knows what it is, which is great. Uh, I've met a lot of doctors that I do advocating with. They do. They've given me a lot of good information on it. I've gone to organizations that, um, you know, advocate for it that have taught me so much about CRPS and then talking with other patients through online that have CRPS or they also call RSD. Um, or, I mean, there's, a, they've called it dystonia. There's a lot of names that they've changed it back and forth to forth over the years. Um, it's pretty crazy because, because they just don't know enough about it. But the mm -hmm. thing is, is it's known enough that they, they have a name for it and stuff like that, but it's not known enough that they can't get enough money towards it to do actual studies on it. Basically. Yeah, this this it's is not something that's so frustrating is to like, to live with a disease, but still not understand it, you know, to like have a diagnosis and still not even necessarily know what that means. You know, that's so hard. Like that, that's, there was a time where I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia and that's another tough one where it's like, yeah, this is a lifelong chronic pain condition that we don't know that much about that a lot of research is being done about. And hopefully someday we'll know more, but for now, try light exercise and uh, get a lot of sleep and a good diet, you know? <laughs> Um, right. Yeah, it's just so complicated to live with. So CRPS is is the theory that it is triggered by physical trauma. Um. Yes. Uh, although you know, I've met. They they say it possibly can be triggered from like uh something like like if you've been abused and stuff like that too. But again, there's not enough information on it yet. I yeah. don't think. But yes, usually it's it's caused by a trauma, you know, that has happened to you, uh, physical trauma. Um, yeah, it's like your body gets attacked externally so much that it starts to attack itself internally. And we don't right. know why. There's like some switch that's flipped somewhere that we don't understand and don't know how to turn it back off. Is, exactly. that, is that right? Okay. Now they do have, um, they, they have from the Civil War era, they have um, said that people have, like, the, that's when they started kind of writing about this disease. So they, they have known about it then. Howard Hughes supposedly had it. Um, you know, he got in a, uh, he was in a plane crash and um, Howard Hughes, billionaire, you know, and, and philanthropist, I can't say it right. <laughs> but he, but he um, yeah, he, uh, he supposedly had it in a full body. Um, it's not, I don't think it's as, I think, I think a lot more people probably have it that don't realize it. And it just hasn't been uh, diagnosed. Like yeah. with me, it, it took them six years to diagnose me with this. Um, I've had it now. 
going on 13 years. Um, and, you know, and, and seven of the, well, six of those years, I didn't know I had it. So, uh, you know, the doctors kept saying it was my neck issues. It was for my neck. And that's why my hands or whatever was feeling that way. But I knew it was something different. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's something majorly going on that wasn't the same as it used to be. <laughs> yeah, totally. So uh, it was hard to find. Like, I mean, I kind of went through life for a while. I gave up trying to look. Like I gave up. And actually when I moved to North Carolina is when, and I had a new doctor and that new set of eyes, that's why it's important hmm. to sometimes get a new set of eyes on. He knew immediately what it was. He's like, you have, uh, you have a uh, uh, CRPS. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and, he, and he told me how to spell it. And he's like, now look, I don't want you going home and Googling it because I don't want you to get scared. Um, well, of course, that's the first thing I do. Yeah, obviously. And all I read is the suicide disease and, you know, incurable and most painful disease ever known to man. I was flipping out. Okay. <laughs> I was flipping out. And I just felt like, oh my gosh, I like, am I going to die? Like, should I die? You know, wow. I mean, what am I going to do now? So, man, your story is incredible. I mean, you've broken your neck twice, died once. <laughs> you have a autoimmune disease, chronic pain, seizures, Raynaud's. I, it's remarkable that you're, you know, as bright and present for this conversation today. You know, I mean, like, well, yeah, I know that that's like, I know you're not that way all the time. Like we had to reschedule. Um, like yeah. we tried to record yesterday, not a good day, made it work today, which is great. Um, and I, I, I obviously know what that's like. You know, I have days where I can't function and um, days where I can. So, um, yeah. and I, I know what it's like to have something that can be invisible on some days and, and readily apparent on other days and how frustrating that is to navigate the world that way. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I'm just so grateful for you to share your story and to like walk us through this process that and this life that you've lived because it's really remarkable. I mean, wow, you've been through so much, so many things that I've never heard anyone say before that they've lived through. And I just want to say how much I appreciate you sharing that story and being so open with us. And just it's just remarkable that you're here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I, I just I don't know any other way to be, you know, like yeah. I, I guess I'm a survivor. And I think um a lot of us are survivors and we go in survival mode a lot of the time and live like that. I think something that's really important and, and I, I've tried to kind of learn to do over time is be present at what I'm doing and enjoy what's around me. Yeah. Like um, animals have been a really amazing thing to have in my life. You know, they've mm. really helped me uh, heal and, and, and learn to grow. I think, I think there's growth in everything that happens. I mean, you could take it however you want, but I always try to see, okay, so this happens to me. So what can I learn from it? You know, and how can I learn from it to take, and what can I take forward with me that will make me better instead of like being, you know, I, I frustrated or angry or, or, or letting it get me down. I mean, I think everybody kind of gets down, but I think the most important thing is, is, is getting back up, you know what mm, I mean? And absolutely. not just staying in that spot. Like um, I think that's what I've learned over time. And, and also like learning to cope with things and, and realizing like, you know, what your, what abilities you are. And, and you mentioned something that's really is hard to deal with is because a lot of what, I deal with and 
you, I guess, and, and so many others uh, being having invisible diseases and looking normal and looking healthy. Uh, people don't realize what you're really dealing with on the inside. And, and a lot of times they don't, don't understand it. And um, because of that, you know, it could get really lonely. Like yeah. friends kind of start to drop out because yeah. you're not able to keep, you know, things that you had scheduled with them or family members might not understand or um, even, you know, my, I've had family and friends that have thought I've been, I've, I'm a drug addict because of, I take pain medicines, mm. but what everything I'm doing allows me to be here and be present and, and, and try to enjoy life a little bit, you know, too. Yeah. That's what it's all about. And, yeah. And, and also like, I want to be able to get, get I don't want to just sit here and take up space. I want to be able to do something and try to help in some way, you know, like to feel like you're, you're, you're so, there's supposed to be something like, yeah. why else are you put here on earth? Like, I've always felt like you're, I always like to have goals and, and, and dreams, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of these things have been almost dream and goal killers, but I think once you could get past them and you're able to heal from them, like you can start having those again, you know, you could start having dreams and goals. It just might not be the same exact things that you thought you were going to be able to have, you know? Totally. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the show, I always like to ask people like, what message would you send back to other people going through something similar? And what you just said is a perfect answer to that. You know, it's, you really spoke to that really beautifully. Um, Thank you. Yeah, you did a really amazing job today. What a great conversation. I'm so excited to share this. Um, but before we wrap up, I would love for you to plug anything that you have to share um, and direct us towards the National Pain Council. If anyone is in need, I think that's a great thing to share. Yeah, um, well, uh, you could uh, become a member by joining us at nationalpaincouncil.org. And all you just do is go on there and sign up. Uh, we also uh, accept donations because especially for some of the bigger projects that we're doing, we do uh, need those. But um, to be a member, it's free. Uh, what we will provide is with members at least is we send regular news briefs to them sharing what's going on within the community and any projects we are doing. And, and if you would like to volunteer and help out, we are always looking for volunteers. Um, even if you ha have um, illnesses yourself, we work around them. You know, even if you could only volunteer maybe two, three hours out of the week, that is totally fine. Um, but, you know, we completely understand because most of us also are disabled within National Pain Council. But again, our main goal is to help patients be able to get back the medications and um, health care that they need. And uh, again, to help fix the doctor-patient relationship. So however we can do that, we do that. Uh, whether it is like I have current projects going on where I help find doctors for patients. I help patients learn how to talk to their doctors. Um you know, because it is, I call it doctor whispering. <laughs> there is like a way to speak with doctors. Um, and I th think, uh, you know, if you're having issues with either, you know, talking to them about medications that you need or um, levels that you need, uh, you know, we love to be able to help out with that. We also um, are putting out a lot of educational pro programs. We're creating an educational program within high schools actually to teach about um pain medication, addiction, all of that, anything that has to do with kind of like pain. And 
we're kind of making it after what they did during um, what happened within the AIDS epidemic. That's the era I grew up in. And I was a peer helper. So, and people came in and taught us peer helpers and then us peer helpers would teach the school. So we're going to do kind of the same thing about with pain medicine, lots of fentanyl drugs and stuff like that. And kind of give kids an, a program on education. Um, there's a school district within North Carolina that is going to uh, allow us to kind of do a trial run and, and see how the kids uh, react and, and, you know, kind of fine tune of what we need to say and what we don't need to say. Uh, we also are working on, um, getting bills passed within states uh, uh, and, and helping. The, we also like to come on board. And if anybody wants to be affiliated, please, we are big time open to that. Um, you know, nothing, we don't want to recreate something that's already out there, you know, <laughs> but um, if we could work together and, and come together to be able to create something and do it more quickly or in a better uh, fashion, then absolutely. We'd love to work with people. So awesome. And what about your personal social media? I know that we connected through TikTok. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. So, um, like, you mean, give the names or if you'd like to share, yeah, feel free. Um, okay. I think I'm, I'm at Janelle Elgway for TikTok, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. (laughs) And I'll, uh, I always post a clip of these episodes on TikTok and I'll tag you if people want an easy way to find you, uh, from our TikTok page, Major Pain Podcast. Um, and are you on Instagram? Um, I am not, actually. Okay, well, that makes it um, easy. Now, National Pain Council just had, we just hired somebody that um, we're going to create an a Instagram. I'm sorry, I didn't even think about that. National <laughs> Pain Council has a Facebook page right now, a website, and then we, we are about to do a Twitter and Instagram page. Oh, nice. And awesome. TikTok. And TikTok. Very exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I what's on Instagram or how do I find you guys? Cause I don't know where to yeah, find you. Um, so the two social media platforms that I use are TikTok and Instagram. And we are at major pain podcast on both. Okay. Great. Yeah. Are you not on uh, YouTube at all? Uh, not at this time. Yeah. We have a website, major pain Um, I, I started a Twitter, but then realized that I had reached the limit of what I was capable of doing. <laughs> so I, I have not posted on it in a while. And I would love to, you know, I would love to have a YouTube and get these conversations up there as well. But I just, I'm, I'm at my limit of bandwidth of what I can accomplish as, as one person running a podcast, you know, you were talking about doing three days a week. And I was like, wow, I, I can barely get one day a week out. I'm like, I'm at my my maximum. <laughs> I know. I totally know what you mean. It, I mean, it's a lot. I mean, between, uh, uh, you know, marketing it, you know, getting guests on, preparing for that editing, then, yeah. you know, the stuff. I, I usually did a lot of live stuff. So, yeah. um, but sometimes we didn't, you know, but I, I like doing live. It was interesting. And we'd have people that would call in, which is fun. You know, you could have, you know, somebody call in and stuff. Yeah, and totally. That's awesome. Well, you mentioned very, before we started recording, you mentioned, you know, that you were used to being the interviewer, not the interviewee, and that you were a little nervous. And I just want to yeah. say you did a fantastic job. Um, I, another really awesome episode of the podcast. You know, I, I can't believe that this is the show that I make because it's just so good all the time. I'm like, wow, everyone just comes on the show. It's like, man, these are amazing stories. And, you know, you did it again today. I, I'm just really, really grateful that you came on the show. I really, really appreciate your time. So, Janelle, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine, 
from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters-Schmidt, and Kelsey Matson, and our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, and Trish O'Brien. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.